Listeners, it is Gerard Robinson coming to you from still beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Little more beautiful than last week, given this past weekend's uh, memorial service for the three young student athletes here at UVA who were shot and killed over a week ago. Uh, the community is still behind the family and others, but things are moving. But again, it's still a little more beautiful today. And of course, everything is beautiful when you add Kara to the conversation. So. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I don't I don't know if my kids would always agree that everything's beautiful. When I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, Gerard, we've been thinking of you and thinking of the people of Charlottesville a lot, as well as people in Idaho and Colorado Springs. I can't believe that here we can just list in a matter of one week these absolute tragedies that keep occurring. But I know that you've been really feeling this as a member of the greater community and working to make sense of what happened in Charlottesville and this really tragic loss of life. So my heart's going out to you. And I think that this Thanksgiving, yes, listeners, we are coming up on Thanksgiving. Hopefully we all have a little bit of time to reflect on how fortunate we are, those of us that have the ability to sit around a table with people that we care for. Exactly. And you and I being parents of children who play sports, the professional and collegiate level and even high school level athletes across the country have shown their support in many ways of whether running onto a field with a UVA flag or having a decal on a helmet or just writing a note. And it wasn't just for football players, it was athletes across the country. And one of the reasons that we support athletics for young people in addition to being good for the soul, body and mind is exactly this. It's about the human spirit, not just competition, but coming around because you see each other as one of your own. We are athletes. So I want to thank all the athletes and coaches across the country. Yeah, you're here. I was thinking the same thing, Gerard, when my whole family woke up at 445 this morning to watch Argentina play. <laughs> and if I'm not mistaken, there was a streak that was broken for your country, right? Oh, yeah, they did not win. <laughs> they did not win. It did not win. We shall see. We shall see. But even in what is turning out to be a little bit of a controversial World Cup in terms of where it's being held and the behaviors of FIFA, you can feel how, to your point, how it's a global sport community and how people come together in very many important ways through sports. Well, speaking of sports, that's a nice segue into my article of the week. And it's one of the ones I really enjoyed because it provided a good 360 degree view or overview of how we think about college enrollment in new ways. So this is from Kevin Carey, who is a leadership position at New America, and it's titled The Incredible Shrinking Future of Colleges. So on our show, we've talked to professors, entrepreneurs, and others who have a role in higher ed. And we know the challenges in higher ed. We know about funding. We know about student athletes. We know a lot of things. But we often don't take a look at some of the external factors that influence college. So the title alone pretty much gives away what the author is talking about. Colleges are shrinking. But exactly why? And so there's several lanes the author walked that I want to share with you and our listeners because it's something for us to think about because it's going to have a trickle effect on K-12. So number one, we talk about college students. We often don't talk about the fact that they're part of a demography. And the demography, as we know it, is produced by families. 
And so what the author said is that if you want to look at when the real change in higher ed happened, go back to the recession or what we call the Great Recession in the early 2000s. So according to economists, the Great Recession started in December 2007 and it ended in June 2009. And we know it was the housing bubble and a number of things. But I remember just the number of people who told me personally they're going to have to delay retirement. Some of them said, you know what, I'm going to hold off on going to college. And a number of people, particularly young people, decided we're not going to have children right now. Well, that ended up playing a very interesting role in what we're talking about today, because as the author noted to those who are going to read the article, you usually see the birthing rate of children impact colleges 15 to 20 years later. So for example, in 2010, of women between the ages of 14 to 44 who were birthing age, you had basically from 1970 to 2007, you roughly had 65 to 70 births per 1,000 women. Fast forward to where we are right now, we're roughly at 56 per thousand, which is the lowest in US history. So one of the reasons you have a shrinking college student body is simply because we have fewer people being born. One thing to keep in mind in terms of the demographic shift. Number two, let's take a look at undergraduate enrollment itself. In 2010, this is toward the end of the Great Recession, we had 18.1 million undergraduate students enrolled, which at that time was a record. In 2019, before COVID, the number had actually decreased to 16.6 million. That's a sizable decrease even before COVID. Well, then we know that when COVID hit, a number of schools closed, a number of students went online, but we also know that a number of students who were enrolled uh, at the time of COVID didn't return. So there's just a shrinking number of students who were going to college even before the pandemic. That's something we've got to consider. Also, let's talk about high schools. You and I are big proponents of making sure students get a high school diploma. And one thing I can say with all the tragedies we have when we talk about NAEP and other things, we have been pretty good about getting students to and through high school. And right now we've got roughly 94% of young people who have a high school diploma. That's one thing to cheer about, but only approximately 67% are actually going to college. That could be a good or bad thing. A lot of students are basically saying, hey, I'm smart enough to go to college, but I want to start a business or I want a credential. I want to do something else. They're doing other things. But it's not because we don't have students who have or lack a credential to get in. It's just that many of them are choosing not to go. Now, let's talk about regional impact and what it means for different parts of the country. So if you take a look at New England, which of course includes your state, but the author also identified Pennsylvania as part of that. Recently, you had 372,000 people move into the state, move into the New England area, but 565,000 people actually left. So that was a net loss of 280, uh, 238,000 people. The sad thing is that trend is gonna continue in the New England area for the next 20 years. Now, if you take a look at the South, totally different story. There are at least 263,000 people that moved to Southern states. That's also including Texas as part of that, because some people often include them in the West for this, it's included in the South. And the South had 447,000 people abroad move there. And so for the South, major increase in the number of people 
who moved there. Now, there is an economist at Carleton College in Minnesota who said, we've got to do a better job of identifying these external factors that actually influence education. And so he created a higher education demand index. And what that index will do is take a look at demography, which includes birth rates, inward migration, outward migration, jobs, and others. And he took a look at different regions. And in some parts of the country, they're going to do well. So for example, even with all the challenges that he identified in this study, he also identified that on the West Coast or the Western states, you're going to see a 7.5% increase in the number of students who are going to enroll in schools in that part of the country. That's a good thing, but he's got some bad news. He said, if you take a look at the Northeast and the Midwest, not only will the college population drop for the reasons that I mentioned, but the people who often earn a college degree in those parts of the country leave and don't come back. And so you're gonna have schools, particularly small colleges in New England and the Midwest that he says you ultimately may find closing. And the last part of news, and this again isn't great news because he's predicting this is going to happen from now to the mid-2030s. If the West Coast is going to see an increase by 7.5%, guess what? New York, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Louisiana are going to see a decline of 15% or more up until the mid-2030s. So there is a shrinking number of students who are going to college. Some of it we can't control, some of the things we can. I think for the kind of work that we do, this is a nice wake up call for the new governors who are interested in improving higher ed. They're gonna have to also take a look and see what we have to do to make higher ed more attractive because they're gonna have to find ways to attract and keep students in school when there's a shrinking population. What are your thoughts? Oh, I have so many thoughts, Gerard. I mean, the first is that when you tell me births are going down in our country. I look around my own house and think I missed that memo. Um, (laughs) I also look around where I live in the Boston area and I think if people are leaving and nobody wants to come here anymore, why is the cost of housing still so high? We live in such a crazy housing market. But no, in all seriousness, these are really important things and really interesting predictions. I hadn't really understood that about the Midwest. I understood it about the Northeast that people are leaving and that here in the Northeast, we've seen small colleges collapsing, they're unable to afford because of declining enrollment, among other things. But I also think, and you touched upon this in the end of your comments, the other thing we all need to be thinking about as a society, as parents, as people who care about higher education, I actually had this as a dinner table conversation with my mother recently. I think increasingly folks are given the cost of college in so many places, trying to consider what the real return on investment is or is going to be. And I think that it's going to be really interesting more and more organizations and people are thinking about how do we help families and students understand what really is the return on investment for a given degree or a given educational path in higher ed. And that too, if we can get really tight around that is going to determine, you know, whether or not people are going to continue to go to college. I think that certainly college degrees still mean something, but I don't know that they mean the same things as they did, for example, in the 1990s when I went to get a bachelor's degree and thought, well, this is my ticket, right? I'm one of the first people in my family to be able to do that and thinking that was my ticket and it wasn't, it's, I think it's got a different meaning today. But Gerard, this thinking about higher ed and entry into higher ed and who's going to be going to higher ed is a really great link to my article from the New York Post 
This is by the editorial board, so it is obviously an opinion piece, but it's entitled, The New York Regents Are Looking to Snap Education Standards Out of Existence. The New York Regents Diploma, as you know, Gerard, for many students in New York State, you can get a diploma diploma to graduate high school, or you can get a Regents Diploma, which shows that you've met a higher standard, you've passed a certain set of standards and exams. And for many kids in New York, that is a really important ticket to higher education. And indeed, you know, institutions of higher ed, although they are diverse in this country, many of the more competitive ones are still looking at things Maybe test scores, they say they don't. Um, I think it's still a differentiating factor in a lot of places, even though many places have gone, quote unquote, exam optional. But seeing the kind of courses you've taken over the course of your high school career and understanding how you've done sort of even on state exams can be a really important component of the opportunities that open up to people in higher education. And as is going on across this country in New York, there is an effort not just to water down standards, but to abolish them, to get rid of them altogether. We've talked about this a little bit before on the learning curve, this idea that is accountability dead? Has the pendulum swung back to a place where nobody wants to talk about standards and testing, let alone enforce them anymore? And the pandemic seems to have, we knew it was going to open up this space. Well, let's put tests on hold. Let's put teaching to teaching to a curriculum on hold. And that the pandemic was going to open up this space for those who are detractors of standards and detractors of test-based accountability that can help us understand not only how students are performing, but much more importantly, how schools are performing. Are these going to go away? Because they're inconvenient. They're inconvenient for some. And it looks like that is what is set to happen in New York. The education commissioner there is speaking out very powerfully saying that she wants to see these exams go away and her allies on the board of regions and this is i'm talking about commissioner of education betty rosa her allies on the board of regions seem poised to make this happen new york aside gerard this won't surprise anybody this scares me on any number of levels but the first level on which it scares me is number one you know one of the arguments that folks who don't like standards and accountability often use is that they're somehow unfair and that they're slanted against those who have the least access they can also sometimes provide opportunity for those who we we think of as people who are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds many times children from backgrounds that we, you and I might consider to be disadvantaged, can flourish if given access to the right curriculum, can flourish if given the opportunity to show that they can succeed on an exam like the regions. And so for some people, it's a ticket up and into higher education. I worked in testing for a long time, and I can tell you, there's a lot of bias and sensitivity vetting that goes on. And I don't buy the argument that these tests are unfair. And importantly, the reason I really don't buy the argument is because used well, standards put everybody on the same page. And when we hold folks accountable to teaching to standards and we use accountability as a tool, something like the Regents exam as a tool, can really shine a light on when schools aren't teaching to standards, when schools aren't teaching kids at all. Again and again, I'll say it, we know this because of No Child Left Behind. There were really important components of that law that worked. And now we want to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater because we don't like that these tests can be stressful. Instead of thinking about reforming them or how to use them better, we're thinking about getting rid of them altogether. The other thing I would point out here is we have very good evidence 
that standards exams, in fact, like end of course examinations like the New York Regents exam, not only provide opportunities for people to go on to higher education, whatever kind of higher education they might choose, but they also send a really important signal to the labor market. So if I have, for example, a Regents diploma, it can send not only a signal to higher education, but to the labor market to say, I have command of a certain set of competencies and skills that can help me be really successful. I mean, at a basic minimum, employers want to know that somebody can read, write, and compute competently. So here's the confluence of our two stories, Gerard. I think just as we're thinking about what is the future of higher education, we also have to think about if we dismantle some of these fundamental components of K-12 education that might not always be the most fun, but are really important tools for helping policymakers and others understand how schools are doing, we might be having an entirely different conversation about what the future of higher education looks like in our country. So what do you think about that in the few minutes that we have? I think that opportunity minus opportunity equals equity of no opportunity for all. Because I often hear that we want to have more equity and therefore we should get rid of tests like this or at the K-12 level, the whole exam, school option in New York for the sake of equity. I just don't see how getting rid of opportunity for everyone is going to give you equity for all. It just gives you equity of all having no opportunity to take the Regents exam. I'm in total agreement with you in terms of signaling and in a time at elite colleges. So what, you know, the article, the uh, author of my article mentioned is that Indiana, your alma mater, University of Chicago, your alma mater, Boston U, your alma mater, Harvard, Howard, mine, those schools are going to be fine because there is a direct line, not only from alumni, but students who want to go. But signaling with a Regents degree at a place where there's a select number of seats for scholarships, it makes a difference. And if you're first in your family to go to college like me, it's actually an additional feather to say, well, you know what? We've got one seat left. We've got five candidates. Oh, Gerard is the only one who's got a Regents diploma. Let's put him in for this reason. And he's also African-American and male and all those things. So I just think we've got to do a better job of trying to find ways to address equity because signaling matters. And when I talked about the 447,000 plus abroad who've come to the South, we're not talking about the thousands who come to the West Coast and other places. Immigrant families who I know, who I've worked with, when they come here, they want their children to have access to every single possible opportunity to give their children an advantage. And yes, they may be quote unquote, disproportionately involved or subscribed into high testing classes and others. That's an issue of us preparing students better. But I can tell you, you're gonna find the backlash coming from immigrant families, not just Asian families, families from Nigeria uh, and parts of the Caribbean as well. So. I'm with you on this. Not that my two cents makes a difference to people in New York, but hopefully they will rethink that opportunity. Yeah, or watch the standard of education in that state tank. Okay, Gerard, hard pivot here because coming up, we're going to be speaking with Nathaniel Philbrick. He is an American historian and a National Book Award winner, and I will read the rest of his accolades right after this.
Learning Curve listeners, as promised, we are back with Nathaniel Philbrook. He is the author of the international bestsellers In the Heart of the Sea, winner of the National Book Award, and Mayflower, a story of courage, community, and war, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He's also a writer of Sea of Glory, winner of the Roosevelt Naval History Prize. His writing has also appeared in Vanity Fair, the New York Times Book Review, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, and the Boston Globe. He's appeared on the Today Show, the Morning Show, Dateline, PBS's American Experience, C-SPAN, and NPR, and he lives on Nantucket Island, beautiful place to be now and probably always. Nathaniel Felbrick, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're really happy to have you, and what an appropriate time of year. So you're here to tell us a bit about the real story, not the mythical story of Thanksgiving. Could you start with it for our listeners? What should we really know? About the first Thanksgiving, I think, is, you know, there is the myth of Victorian-era dress of people gathered around, their hands clasped, praying as they eat their turkey and pumpkin pie with a few curious Native Americans looking on. And that's not anything like what the actual Thanksgiving was. In fact, it wasn't a Thanksgiving. It had more in common with a harvest festival. It wasn't in November. It would have been late September and October. For them, it was a celebration of having lived through that first horrible winter in which half the pilgrims died. And then having, thanks to the intervention of the Wampanoag leader, Massasoit, and Squanto and several other Wampanoag, you know, they had planted crops and they they had something, they had a bounty to enjoy. And so this was a harvest festival. It would have been outside. There were, you know, about less than 50 survivors from that first winter. And in fact, it would be primarily a, a native uh, event because about 100 Poconocas, a group of uh, the Wampanoag, arrived with a couple of freshly killed deer, and there was too many of them to sit around a table. They just didn't have the furniture. It would have been an outdoor thing around fires where duck and perhaps some turkeys were turned on a spit with pottages, stews, and things like that happening. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of oppression, obviously, at Plymouth Colony, but for this, this was a point at which the thanks to the Wampanoag, who had extended a kind of olive branch and had not wiped them out as they could have, they had survived. And in this one specific moment in history, there was actual cooperation between two very different peoples because they were both survivors. The Wampanoag had been almost wiped out by European disease yet three years before the arrival of the pilgrims. And they they felt they needed an ally when it came to the rival Narragansett. And so there is some truth to the first Thanksgiving. And I think it's important to see it, you know, in its cultural terms, not as as a, that mythic stereotype. These are real people who were celebrating a brief moment in which they were working cooperatively. Well, so sort of a lovely kernel of hope in an otherwise pretty depressing story from both perspectives, it sounds. So I want to talk about both groups that participated in that first Thanksgiving kit. But let's first, most of us know where the pilgrims came from. Again, if we have gone to American schools, right, they were fleeing religious persecution. They were actually first in Holland, and then they make this long voyage over to what was then called the New World. So 
Talk to us a little bit about who these people were, the obstacles that they had to overcome, and can we even begin to imagine that voyage, what it must have been like? Oh, it was a, a voyage from hell. It really was. Well, you know, these were religious separatists, and I think it's a, a common misnomer. They, you know, they fleeing for religious freedom. No, they were fleeing so that they could worship as they pleased and would not tolerate anyone else, basically. They were looking for their own personal religious freedom. They were separatists who believed that they needed to pull away from the Church of England and worship God in as direct a way without the symbols and imagery of, of the traditional church. And this was illegal in England. So that had led them to go to the more tolerant scene in Holland. But in Holland, their children were becoming Dutch and they were proudly English. What to do? Well, there was the colony of Virginia that extended all the way up to New York. And that was their hope is that they bet the farm on a crazy idea of going across the ocean to the new world, as they called it. And it would prove to be these were religious enthusiasts who were not necessarily good at organizing an expedition. And it, things went bad from the very beginning. They purchased the inappropriately named Speedwell, a vessel that would cause them ceaseless headaches and delay their ultimate departure from England when they had to abandon the Speedwell and go in their other vessel, the famous Mayflower. And by this time, their original ambition had been to arrive in the New World in the beginning of summer with plenty of time to build houses to protect them from winter. It was September where they left Plymouth, England after a series of delays. And it would be late fall by the time they finally reached the New World. They, they were hoping to go to New York. They would end up off the tip of Cape Cod in Massachusetts after almost destroying the ship on some shoals off the south shore of Cape Cod, decided that they had no choice but to go for what we call Massachusetts now. And so it was late. People had already begun to die of, of sickness, and they had no idea about anything as far as where they were. It was about the worst circumstances you could possibly have to begin a colony in the Americas. So again, another part of the story that we don't think about very much, one can barely even imagine today on a cruise ship, I can't even imagine a 10-week voyage, to do it at that time with so few resources and in such dangerous conditions. It's absolutely amazing to think about. There was 102 of them, and half of them were separatists and the other half were not. So from the beginning, there were divisions within this group, and it wasn't the monolithic pilgrims. It was a, a more complicated aspect, which I think is important to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, spending that much time in close quarters with group divisions, uh, it, an amazing story. So one of the ways, if they're lucky, that students will learn about history, will learn about the past is through primary source documents. And many of us have, if we might not be able to remember its contest, but we've heard of the Mayflower Compact and the Plymouth Colony leader, William Bradford. He has a famous journal from 1630 to 1651, was of Plymouth Plantation. What do these particular accounts tell us about the Pilgrims, as well as the Wampanoags and the world that they each, that they coexisted in for that time? Yeah. Well, let's start with the Mayflower Compact. It's an extraordinary document. They realized that they were going to have to go to a part 
of the new world for which they really didn't have legal right to go. And so there was a bit of, I won't call it an insurrection, but a disagreement between the Puritans and those that didn't necessarily believe in those beliefs. And with some of them saying they would go their own way once they got on land, which would have been a disaster for everyone. And, uh, you know, they had Miles Standish, who was their military officer, and they could have looked to him to subdue the rebels. But instead, they uh, created the Mayflower Compact, which was an agreement by everyone, uh, all the passengers. And this is what makes it interesting that, you know, these were religious enthusiasts, but this was a civil document by which everyone agreed to mind the laws of their civil leaders. And so given the circumstances, you know, some people have said, oh, you know, it's the U.S. Constitution in utero. It was not that by any means. It wasn't very much different from something you might find in England. But the circumstances are what make it extraordinary. You know, here they are at the end of their known world, the things falling apart. And what did they do? They put pen to paper and create a document that we still look to as essential in the history of this country. And then for me, as a historian, these documents are so important. One of the the, um, joys of, of working on this book was actually holding William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation which is in the Massachusetts archives. It's calfskin volume. It looks like it was written yesterday. It's in such great shape. And in it, Bradford tells the story of Plymouth Plantation in details that bring to life the various characters, but also the English struggles with the native people. Their attempts to forge a compact, an understanding with Massasoit, how things went bad and uh, there was violence at various times, how they then came to other agreements. And it, it really, it's a document that is very human, that really gives you the sense of unknowing that they had. I think there's a tendency to think, oh, the Pilgrim Fathers, they knew what they were doing from the start. But the reality is they were they had no clue what was going on. They didn't know where it was headed. They were surprised and terrified at the turn of events just about everywhere they went. And uh, this is a chronicle of their attempts to sort of make their way day by day in this new world of completely different circumstances from what they had left in Europe. You just sparked my interest regarding Bradford and holding the book. Today, it's easy for many of us to look backward in comfortable rooms, air-conditioned rooms, maybe at this time of year with a fire, to say they had it made. They knew exactly what they were doing. And in fact, you say they were building as they were going. Is there any one or two particular things that you learned about that community that was even an aha moment for you as a historian that you think we as contemporary Americans should listen to? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I had not really fully appreciated before I I got into the research for this book was how completely ignorant the pilgrims were of their new surroundings. You know, they marched along the north shore of Cape Cod in search of a navigable river. (laughs) There aren't, there there are barely creeks in that section. They really had no clue where they were going. I mean, not even a map to really guide them. And every time they would come across signs of native peoples, they would make terrible mistakes. And they came across some corn that had been buried for later use. What did they do? They stole it. They went into native houses. And eventually they came to what is still known as First Encounter Beach on Cape Cod. And I knew about First Encounter Beach. I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the Cape. But I have to tell you, if you go out there now, 
particularly uh, at the time of year, around this time of year, that they were trudging their way, sailing their way along, you can just see how bleak it was. And it was there that they encountered a group of uh, Wampanoag warriors. And there was a confrontation where they're firing at each other, arrows whistling through the air, and no one was hurt. But what that established was, you know, what the heck were they in the middle of? What had they done? Had they stirred the hornet's nest? And was it about to consume them? Could they actually do some kind of form of diplomacy and, and right the situation that they had messed up so much? You know, for me, that was the moment where you realize, you know, it's two peoples that are don't understand each other, are naturally terrified of each other. And where is it going to go from here? And I think the remarkable thing is that there would be some kind of a compromise reached that it would all blow apart eventually. But on that beach, it all begins. That beach and the other encounters later on, we often talk about it from the perspective of the men in war, men in negotiation. You're well aware that there were women involved across the board. From your research, could you talk to us about Pilgrim and Native women, what their lives were like, and what was their role, not only in what we call the first Thanksgiving, but just the interactions that you just described. Yeah, well, one of the important figures for me, because it's hard to get at this, just given the evidence. There's so little of it. Uh, the accounts we have are either written by men or focus on men, Native and English. There's just not a lot of information. And yet, you can get from the peripheries of the story, there's evidence, not mentioned by William Bradford, is really what would happen to his own wife, the circumstances of her dying. She would, as Bradford and this group of pilgrims were searching for what would ultimately be a settlement at, at Plymouth, Dorothy is back on the vessel with other women and, and other male pilgrims. And at some point, she slips over the edge of the Mayflower and drowns. We ne we'll never know exactly what happened, but I think there's a real possibility that it was despair that drove her to this point. They were in this terrifying state of not knowing. She had left her son back with friends in Europe, and she didn't know what was going to happen to her husband on this, this expedition. And so for me, Dorothy Bradford is one of those symbols of the not, of, of the, what little we know and yet how much emotional life was invested in, in what they were going through. In terms of Native women, the focus is always on Squanto and Massasoit, but it was the women who were planting the crops that would sustain not only the Wampanoags, but the pilgrims. And so there's whole elements of life that are hard to get a, a bead on, given the, what we know in terms of the documents, but still, we must do everything we can to tell their story. So here's a final question for me. So, you know, your excellent book covers approximately 55 years from the Mayflower's voyage ahead of King Philip's war with the native inhabitants. And of course that changed their lives and the lives of the natives as well as those who were there. Would you discuss how the relationship between the pilgrims and the natives people changed in the decades following what we call the first Thanksgiving and what it should teach our students and educators today about, let's say, the fury of religion, war, and race in early America? Well, you know, I didn't want to end this book with the first Thanksgiving because I thought what the story you 
to do it justice, you had to go to the next generation because circumstances changed. At the time of the first Thanksgiving, as I said earlier, both the Pilgrims and Wampanoags needed each other in terms of their own cultural survival. But things would change as more and more English would arrive in Massachusetts. Ten years after the, the voyage of the Mayflower, the Puritans would begin to arrive in Boston. And soon you'd have this inundation of English peoples. And as this was happening, the negotiations that the Pilgrims had undergone with the Wampanoags for land would heat up. Now, these kinds of things. And soon there, as the population increased on the English side, this hunger for land meant that the second generation began to have a very different attitude towards their native neighbors. Rather than seeing them as indispensable to their survival, they saw them as possessing the land they desired. On the Wampanoag side, if you are a young warrior who you could see that your prospects were nothing compared to what your, the previous generation had had thanks to the arrival of these English, and you became increasingly angry about it. And what would happen? 50 years after the voyage of the Mayflower would be King Philip's War, the bloodiest war ever fought on American soil in terms of the percentage of population killed. Half the English villages, uh, towns in, in Massachusetts would be burned and abandoned at one point, and the native side would be absolutely decimated in this terrifying conflict that would last a little less than two years. And I think it speaks to the importance of remembering. As Philip, whose native name was Medicon, would say, when you first came here, you were as a little child, and my father was the one that allowed you to live. Now here you have grown up, and what are you doing? You forget completely that the fact that you're, you're here today and flourishing was because of this bargain you made with my father. And so it's a lesson that needs to be constantly remembered and refreshed and will regrettably be forgotten as all of us hurtle into the future. But it's, this, I think, the ultimate meaning of the story of the Thanksgiving is what would happen later with the next generation, where all that promise would be destroyed. Well, speaking of your excellent book, we want to provide you an opportunity to read a passage of your choice before we close. Well, thank you. I think what I will read since we're running around Thanksgiving is a paragraph that talks about what that first Thanksgiving was really like. Countless Victorian-era engravings notwithstanding, the pilgrims did not spend the day sitting around a long table draped with a white linen cloth, clasping each other's hands in prayer as a few curious Indians looked on. Instead of an English affair, the first Thanksgiving soon became an overwhelmingly native celebration. When Massasoit and a hundred Poconocans, more than twice the entire English population of Plymouth, arrived at the settlement with five freshly killed deer. Even if all the pilgrims' furniture was brought out into the sunshine, most of the celebrants stood, squatted, or sat on the ground as they clustered around outdoor fires where the deer and birds turned on wooden spits and where pottages, stews, into which varieties of meats and vegetables were thrown, simmered invitingly. And so that's a paragraph describing what that first celebration probably was like. Beautifully written. Nathaniel Philbrick, thank you so much for spending time with us right before Thanksgiving. What a wonderful 
lesson and an enjoyable conversation that I hope we can all take to the Thanksgiving table with us this year. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure and may everyone have a great Thanksgiving. You too. Happy Thanksgiving. Please take care. So my tweet of the week is from Education Next, November 21st. Learning loss may be more severe, but it is certainly not new. And it's a really good piece, basically telling you everything you need to know from the title. So I won't spoil it. That's my yeah, it's a little depressing, but I'm going to go ahead and read anyway. <laughs> Gerard, well, first of all, I'm wishing you an amazing Thanksgiving, as amazing as it can be given everything you've been going through lately. Next week, we are going to be speaking with Peter Cousins, and he is the award-winning author of The Earth is Weeping, the epic story of the Indian Wars for the American West. So we are going to continue a focus on this country of ours, historically speaking, and where we are today. Until then, Gerard, I wish you and your family peace and love and a wonderful meal with people that you care about. Same to you, same to our listeners. Let's be thankful for what we have. I am thankful for you, my friend. Ditto. Take care. Take care.